Well, our sermon text this morning is Colossians chapter 1, uh, verses 21 to 23. Let me read those verses for us just now. Colossians 1, beginning in verse 21. The Apostle Paul writes, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. May the Lord bless uh, the reading of his word. Well, why did Cain kill Abel? Why did Cain kill Abel? As Jim read for us in Genesis chapter 4, right after Adam and Eve had disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden, and had alienated mankind from God, we read in Genesis 4 that Adam and Eve have two children, Cain and Abel. Cain is a worker of the ground. He's a farmer. And Abel is a keeper of the sheep, we're told. And the text of Genesis says, as we heard, that in the course of time, Cain and Abel bring offerings to the Lord. And the way that the text is written suggests that Cain doesn't really bring the Lord his best, or perhaps he doesn't bring the Lord what God had required of him. Uh, Abel, on the other hand, honors God with the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions, the text says. In other words, Abel honors God with his best goods. The New Testament book of Hebrews tells us that by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. And so Cain, having distrusted God, having failed to honor God on God's terms, having done wrong, doesn't receive God's favor while Abel does. And we're told that Cain, whose fault this situation is, was very angry and his face fell. Well, mercifully, God moves toward Cain with an opportunity for repentance and with a warning. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, if you do good, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Well, tragically, sin has its way with Cain, and he responds to God's mercy with further hostility and anger. Uh, Being unable to kill the righteous God at whom he is angry, Cain kills his righteous image bearer, his brother Abel. But God, in shocking mercy, once again moves toward Cain with an opportunity to confess. The text says, Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And Cain flat out lies to the living God whose image bearer he had just murdered. I don't know. And then he says these famous words, 
am I my brother's keeper? Right? Don't miss this. Cain is mocking God. Abel was a keeper of the sheep. And Cain is throwing Abel's vocation in God's face while he lies to him about murdering his brother. Right? The point is not, oh, we're all our brother's keeper. That's true. The point is that Cain is mocking God. So God curses Cain. Cain whines about God's curse, and mercifully, God limits Cain's punishment. And the story closes with this comment. Because of Cain's sin, we're told Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain sins, and his sin produces hostility toward God. And that hostility leads him into further sin, which produces more hostility and further alienation from God. It's a terrifying cycle. Well, in our sermon text this morning, Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 to 23, Paul reminds the Christians in Colossae that they, once upon a time, weren't all that different uh, from Cain. There in verse 21, Paul tells the Colossians that they were once alienated and hostile in mind, alienated from God, hostile in mind toward God, doing evil deeds. And the shocking mercy of our passage there in verse 22 is that even though the Colossians were once God's enemies, God has now reconciled them to himself through Jesus. And there in verse 23, Paul Paul encourages the Colossians to keep going as believers because of the future hope of the gospel that they've heard. And then at the end of verse 23, he makes a few statements um, about that gospel. It's a beautiful text. There's a lot here for us in these three verses. Our outline this morning is pretty straightforward. First, let's see what the Colossians, I'm sorry, what Paul says about the Colossians' past. That'll be our first point. What does Paul say about the Colossians' past? Second, let's see what Paul says about the Colossians' present. And then third, and unsurprisingly, let's see what Paul says about the Colossians' future. So their past, their present, their future. And then fourth and finally, let's see two comments that Paul makes about the gospel uh, at the end of our passage. So the Colossians' past, the Colossians' present, the Colossians' future, and then two comments that Paul makes about the gospel at the end of our passage. So first point, what does Paul tell the Colossians about their past? Well, it's very clear from the passage that the past that Paul is speaking about is the Colossians' pre-Christian past, right? He's talking about their lives before they had faith in Jesus, before Epaphras brought the gospel to Colossae, as we learned in verses 3 to 8, before they believed. And by the way, have you noticed that Paul does this a lot in his letters? He loves to do this. Paul often contrasts the past the once before Jesus, uh, with the present, the now because of Jesus in the lives of the Christians that he writes to. Paul frequently highlights all that God's people have received in Jesus uh, by comparing their pre- and their post-conversion states. Here are a few examples. Our assurance of pardon from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13. Paul writes, But now in Christ Jesus... You who once were far off have been brought near 
by the blood of Christ, once far off, now brought near. Paul does the same in the passage immediately before that, Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. I hope you're familiar with that passage. Paul writes there, and you were in the past dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Verse 4, Paul writes, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive now together with Christ. Once dead, now alive in Jesus. Paul does the same thing in Romans. He does it on a grand scale from Romans 1 to 5. He does it within one verse in Romans chapter 6, verse 17. He says, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Once slaves of sin, now obedient to the heart, from the heart. One more example, Titus chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. Paul says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. Once disobedient and foolish, now saved by God's mercy. You get the point. Doug Moo says, Paul loves to highlight the glorious new status that believers enjoy by contrasting it with their former life of sinfulness and condemnation. Paul thinks it does Christians good to think about their life prior to Christ and apart from Him. He doesn't think that's overly gloomy. He doesn't think that that's morose. He thinks it will help us grow as Christians. So what specifically does Paul say about the Colossians' pre-Christian past, which, by the way, is equally true of all of our pre-Christian past? Well, there in verse 21, Paul tells us three things that are true of all people apart from Jesus. Three things true of all people apart from or prior to Jesus there in verse 21. First thing, he tells us uh, that we were alienated from God. Here, that word alienated carries the idea of an improper separation a relational distance that shouldn't be there uh, between God and man. So in the, the Greek Old Testament, twice this word alienation gets used in Ezekiel 14 to describe the estrangement between God and Israel when Israel leaves their covenant God to worship idols, which God compares to adultery. Uh, several years ago, I watched a crime drama series with my family, that focused on a family that experienced a tragic murder. And the plot thickens when you realize that actually the father of the person who has been murdered is having an affair with someone else in the town. And when this comes to light, as you might expect, there is estrangement. There is alienation because of this man's infidelity. Paul is saying that something like that, but more serious characterizes mankind's relationship uh, with God. The claim of the Bible is that we were created to live in intimate religious fellowship with God. Our greatest 
love, our highest affection, our deepest loyalty was meant to belong to God. But sadly, that's not how we've lived. Paul writes in Romans 1 that even though God has made his existence and his worship worthiness plain to us in creation and in conscience, he says that we've worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. We have looked to created things for the security and the approval and the peace and the ultimate joy and the purpose and the life that can only come from the personal knowledge of our Creator. And so just like cheating in a marriage produces distance, mankind's natural state has become one of alienation from God. And notice, it's not just that we're not acquainted with God, right? The Prime Minister of Sweden and I, we don't really know each other. We're unacquainted. There's not any hostility between us, I'm very happy to report. We're just really not that close. And it's not a problem either. I don't intend to get particularly close. I don't even know the name of this individual. But with God, it's not that we're unacquainted. It's that we're estranged. It's that there's been a breach in the intimacy that ought to be there. That's the first thing that Paul says about the Colossians' pre-Christian past. They are alienated. Second thing that Paul says there in verse 21 about the Colossians and our pre-Christian past is that they were hostile in mind. Again, I think Paul means hostile toward God. Right? Paul is speaking here about the default internal disposition or the mindset of mankind toward God. Specifically, Mankind regards God as an enemy. The natural state of our hearts is that we view God with enmity and anger. We are hostile toward Him. So listen, by God's grace, I am a Christian. Praise the Lord. Jesus Christ has saved me from my sins. Jesus has changed me at the deepest level in His merciful patience. He is changing me every day. At the most fundamental level, because of God's grace to me, I love God. I want to be near Him because He loved me and gave His Son to save me. But even though that's true, I am really sad to tell you that I still see in my heart remnants of hostility toward God. I'm, I'm trying to be a pastor here. And when I look in my heart, I see that there's a part of it that's disposed toward God in anger and hostility. Sometimes, if I'm honest, I find in myself a bristling at God's good commandments. Sometimes I find that I am suspicious of God's goodness. I find in myself a dullness to hearing God's words. I find in myself a deep aversion to prayer. I find sometimes that it is tedious to love and seek the living God. And like Cain, sometimes my hostility toward God goes horizontal in anger and bitterness toward God's image bearers, toward other people. The Bible teaches that there is a deep, deep connection between our heart's posture toward God and how we treat 
God's image bearers. Again, praise God, the remnants of hostility against God are in my heart, but by God's grace, that's not the main thing that's in the heart of any born-again Christian, right? The main thing is that we have been given new life, and that wins and dominates and grows over time. But as Paul writes, there is in every Christian, there's a war between the flesh and the spirit. So Christian, do you see in yourself any remnants of your former hostility to God? What a tragic thing, a senseless thing is our sin. God has only ever done us good. Who are we to be hostile to him? What are we doing to be averse to the God who has loved us in Jesus Christ? Friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, first, let me again say you're, you're so welcome to be here. We are delighted that you are here. Friend, can you see that your disposition toward the God of the Bible is fundamentally hostile The Bible recognizes that people who are not Christians are capable of many real good things because they're made in God's image and because of common grace. I know lovely non-Christian people. But the Bible teaches that apart from Jesus, at root, we're like Cain. When God's holiness exposes our sin and when His rule contradicts our will, our hostility to God bubbles to the surface. Friend, can you see that in yourself? Look, if if you think that mankind is not disposed in hostility toward God, look at what we did to Jesus. God showed up as a man. And when mankind came face to face with God's goodness and with God's authority, we killed him. Friend, that's what our hearts are naturally like. If you're here this morning and you're tempted to say, I wouldn't have done that. I wouldn't have been the part of the crowd that killed Jesus. I'm not like that. Listen, it's the people who love Jesus who have learned to sing things like this. Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Uh, Paul writes that before Christ, the Colossians, like ourselves, were alienated and they were hostile in mind to God. Third, Paul writes that the Colossians' past was characterized, there in verse 21, uh, by evil deeds. Right? Our translation says, alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, in verse 21. That's a good translation. More literally, Paul just adds the qualifier, in evil deeds. So I think Paul here is asserting some kind of relationship between our hostility toward God and our evil deeds. So like Cain, we sin because we're hostile to God. And then when we sin, that leads us into further hostility toward Him, right? Our evil deeds and our hostile disposition of mind are in an unholy alliance to keep us far from God. Proverbs 19.3 puts it this way, when a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. Well, guess what raging against the Lord is? It's more folly, which will bring your way to more ruin, which will bring you more hostility to God. Evil deeds, 
evil deeds, Paul says, what are those? Here are some of the things Paul lists in Colossians. Inordinate love of the world over against love for God. Sexual immorality. Uncontrolled passions. Greed. Anger. Wrath. Slander. Filthy speech. Lying. Friend, what, what Paul is saying here, this is the reason that it is never safe to sin with confidence that you will repent later. Because in that moment, you're saying, I'm not willing to repent and turn to God right now. But maybe after I introduce something into the situation, which will dispose me to more hostility to God, maybe I'll be able to repent after that. Friend, that makes no sense. It is never safe to sin. Paul says that the Colossians pass, and if we are believers, our past is characterized by alienation from God, by hostility toward God, and by evil deeds. And Paul doesn't spell it out explicitly here. He does elsewhere. But what Paul says about mankind's attitude toward God makes sense of what Scripture says elsewhere about God's attitude toward mankind, right? Precisely because God is good, because He is the fountain of all goodness, God is opposed to those who oppose Him, right? The God who is in the right is righteously hostile to the sinners who are unrighteously hostile toward Him, which leads us, thanks to the marvelous good news that Paul mentions about the Colossians' present state uh, because of Jesus. Second point, we've seen the Colossians' past. What does Paul say about the Colossians' present state because of Jesus? There in verse 21, he says, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, verse 22, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, right? Paul is saying that not we, the perpetrators, but God, the offended party, has acted to accomplish reconciliation, a bringing back together, a restoration of peace between himself and the sinners who had rebelled against him. And this action that God has taken centers on the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, that, that thought is so alien to our culture, right? That the bodily death of a man named Jesus 2,000 years ago is actually the fix for our relationship with God. Why, why is that the case, right? I've been estranged with other people before, and, and no one had to die for us to be reconciled, right? What's, what's up with that? Well, I think we see that Jesus' death is necessary to reconcile us to God for two reasons, at least two reasons. First, it's necessary to remove God's righteous hostility toward us. So where, where there is hostility between two people, if the hostility stems from some legitimate wrongdoing, then in order for there to be reconciliation, someone has to pay the cost of forgiveness. And listen, that's not just a metaphor. There is an invisible but a real and concrete cost to forgiveness. Let me give you an example. This example is borrowed from a friend. Imagine that Kyle Sweetland and I are having coffee, and we're working on our laptops as we do. We're sipping our coffee. We're having a good time. We're working on our laptops. And imagine that I spill coffee 
on Kyle's laptop. I say, oh, Kyle, I'm so sorry. That, I'm, I was just being clumsy, and I'm really sorry, right? Kyle can do one of two things. He can say, I don't forgive you. Give me a new laptop. Or he can say, I, I forgive you. It's okay. I'll, I'll get another one. It was an accident. Well, really, that's not a very good illustration of moral cost because I didn't really sin, right? I was just clumsy. And the payment is like another laptop, which God can create a laptop out of nothing. Well, let me give you an illustration of how moral cost works. Imagine the next day I come back to Kyle and I say, hey, Kyle, I need to confess something to you. Yesterday, I was angry at you, and I spilled coffee on your laptop on purpose. I meant to break it. Can you see, can you feel the moral cost that someone is going to have to pay? Can you see the cost that Kyle is going to have to absorb in himself if he's going to forgive my moral transgression? Right? He's, if he's going to withhold his personal wrath against me for my wrongdoing, he's going to have to suffer. He's going to have to absorb it in himself. And that's not an entirely adequate analogy, but it communicates the basic point, right? If you've ever struggled with bitterness, if you, like if you're human, right? If you've ever struggled with how difficult it is to actually forgive someone when they really wrong you, you're wrestling with the reality of moral cost. Well, listen, God is the infinitely glorious and holy and righteous creator and judge of all. God is a lot more important than you or me or Kyle. And when we sin against God, there is an immeasurably greater moral cost both in degree and in kind. And God would be just. He would be right and good and righteous to make us pay the moral cost of his righteous wrath under eternal death in hell. But the good news of the gospel is that God has paid the cost so that sinners might be reconciled to himself. This transcends our understanding. But the Bible teaches that when Jesus was dying on the cross, as his body was fastened to the wood and he choked to death, he was absorbing in himself the righteous wrath of God against our sin. God, the triune God, was absorbing in himself in the person of Jesus, our substitute, our penal substitute. He was absorbing the cost, his own righteous wrath. And Jesus, as he died, he wiped out our sin debt, so to speak, right? Through Jesus, God has satisfied his own justice so that he can lay aside his hostility toward us, right? And Jesus' death doesn't just fix God's end of the relationship. Get this, the death of Jesus also fixes our end of the relationship. This is so good, right? The Bible especially in the, in the writings of Paul, it teaches that the death of Jesus is actually how God breaks both the guilt and the power of sin in the lives of people who believe in him. Jesus breaks the guilt or the stain and uh, the power or the enslaving rule of sin in the lives of those who believe in him. Think about the guilt of our sin, right? The language of Isaiah 53 is so helpful. 
It says that the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, right? It's like our sins, they're pictured as a weight or as a concrete filthiness. They're an objective moral blemish. And God, magnificently, somehow, He takes that blemish from us and lays it on Jesus as He dies, right? The blemish on us gets wiped off onto Jesus. I heard Sinclair Ferguson say one time that if you are dirty, something must become dirty for you to become clean, either some water or some towel or something. If you're dirty, something must become dirty for you to become clean. The Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all that we might become clean. Whereas before we were unclean and blemished and condemnable, according to verse 22, Jesus has made us what? What does it say? Holy and blameless and above reproach. Jesus breaks the guilt of our sin. Jesus' death also breaks the power of sin in all who believe in him. In other words, Jesus fixes our hostility toward God. Isn't that amazing, right? Our hostility toward God was our problem. It was 200% our fault. But at the cost of the death of his son, God didn't just forgive us, didn't just lay aside his own anger. He took care of our anger toward him. So friend, Lord willing, we'll say more about this when we get to Colossians 3. But when you're in conflict with someone, Even when they're in the wrong and you're in the right, when you humble yourself to pursue reconciliation first, you're incarnating the gospel. Not to pretend like you did the wrong thing when you didn't do the wrong thing, but when you humble yourself to pursue reconciliation first, even when the other person is the wrong party, you are embodying what God has done for us in the gospel. Right, this, is, this is the point of the passage that Jenna Lee read for us from Romans chapter 6. Right? The point is that the death of Jesus, it has a killing power in the lives of all who are united to him by faith. Right? Romans 6, if we've believed in Jesus, symbolized by our baptism into Jesus, we've been united to Jesus. Therefore, we've been united with him in a death. Jesus died for sin. Therefore, everyone united to him has undergone a decisive break with the power of sin in their lives doesn't mean there's no indwelling sin, doesn't mean that we don't continue to struggle with sin, but as Paul says, we have been set free from sin, as he says in Romans chapter 6, through the death of Jesus. So Christian, if you are a Christian, you can live at peace with God. Your sin might feel unescapable, and the Bible does teach that none of us will successfully become perfect before we die but you're not enslaved to sin. You're not ruled by your feelings of hostility toward God. Jesus breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. Right? Can you see Jesus has accomplished a full package reconciliation for all who trust in him? Friend, listen, if you're not sure whether you've been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, we would love to talk to you about that after the service. Please come talk to me. Talk to anyone you've seen up here. There's nothing more important than being reconciled to God through his son, Jesus. I was talking to our brother Marcus about this Bible passage, uh, and he mentioned that Paul's comments in verses 21 to 23 in our passage, 
they really kind of harken back to before the song that we looked at last week. So the song is from verses 15 to 20. Paul kind of resumes a thought that he had been developing before that in verses 13 and 14, where he talks about Jesus delivering us from the domain of darkness and transferring us to the kingdom of, of God's Son. And what is Paul doing in verses 13 and 14? He's listing reasons that we should give God thanks. I think that's what he's doing here too. Christian, when you pray later today, if you get to pray at a meal, for example, thank God that he has reconciled you to Jesus, through Jesus, to himself. The Colossians past, our past was characterized by alienation, uh, by hostility, by evil deeds. Uh, but now, second point, their present state is that they've been reconciled to God, that they're holy, that they're blameless, that they're above reproach. So what lies in the future for them? Paul really mentions two things about the Colossians' future. Uh, the first thing that he mentions is actually the goal of the reconciliation that God has accomplished through Christ. He says that the, the purpose of God reconciling us to himself is so that on the day of judgment, uh, we can be presented before God blameless. See, that's what he says there in verse 22. Look, look with me. He says, he has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death. Why? In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So those words that Paul uses, the word for present and the word for above reproach, those two words have a judicial overtone. That is, if you're familiar with the way the Old Testament speaks about the, the day of final judgment, when Paul says to present you blameless, some commentators argue, and I think they're right, you would have thought, ah, present when? Present on the day of judgment. What does it mean to be blameless? It means to be forgiven and acquitted and justified rather than condemned. So Paul says, God has now reconciled you so that on the day of judgment, you can be blameless before him. All right, think about this. Cain murders Abel. Why doesn't Cain die immediately? Right, when we sin, right, why, don't, why doesn't God's judgment fall as quickly as it sometimes does in the Bible, right? The reason is because God in his wisdom and his mercy and his patience has determined to delay the final reckoning for sin to a day of judgment when the Lord Jesus Christ returns bodily. Listen to how Paul describes the day of judgment in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul writes to the Corinthians, therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in the darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Friends, if we're honest with ourselves for like eight seconds, that should be really terrifying that on the day of judgment, God will disclose everything that goes on in our hearts before his holy judgment seat. So can you see what good news it is that those who have been reconciled will on the day of judgment be presented to God holy. All of the impure things in their hearts wiped out, forgiven, above reproach, uncondemnable by God. I remember a conversation that I was having uh, with uh, an unbelieving, actually a stranger uh, who was very willing to talk about religion. And I asked this person what she believed would happen uh, when she dies. She was an, an adherent of another religion. And she told me, when I die, 
I will be judged by God, and I will receive what I have deserved for how I have lived. And I remember it was one of those rare moments when you realize how good the gospel is, because joy swelled in my heart as I said, ma'am, can I tell you some really good news? I'm certain that on the day of judgment, when I stand before God, I'm not going to get what I deserved because Jesus Christ got what I deserved, and I'm going to get mercy. And even my imperfect good works, my obedience, which Jesus himself produces in me, is going to be graciously rewarded, right? The New Testament does teach that how real Christians live does affect, I believe, their rewards in the afterlife. But our being blameless or not, our being justified or condemned, does not rest on our performance, does not rest on our works. It rests on the reconciliation that God has given to us in Jesus. That's the first thing that Paul says about the Colossians' future. And the second thing, think carefully with me, the second thing that Paul says about the Colossians' future actually qualifies that first thing. Look again at verse 23. He says, Verse 22, Jesus has reconciled to you to present you holy and blameless above reproach before him. Verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Right? You see Paul's logic. Uh, Paul is saying because you've been reconciled, uh, you will on the day of judgment be presented blameless before God. That will happen if... Between now and then, you continue in the faith. Notice he, does, he doesn't say if you become perfect between now and then. He doesn't say if you reach level 12 of Christian maturity between now and then. He says if you continue in the faith, right? If you don't shift from the hope of the gospel, which is a gospel, yes, that produces obedience and is a gospel of justification by grace, so Paul here is teaching what in systematic theology we call the perseverance of the saints. That's a term that it's helpful to know, the perseverance of the saints. That is to say, Paul is teaching that those who will be saved by Christ on the final day of judgment, those who will be presented before God holy and blameless, are those who persevere with faith in Christ until death or until the final judgment. So there are kind of two ways that we could construe what Paul is saying here. He could be saying, look, if you don't continue to believe, you really were reconciled to God by Jesus. You really were united to Jesus by faith. But if you stop believing, you lose it. You lose it all. Like you, what you really have goes away. Jesus really did forgive you, but if you drop the ball, he'll unforgive you. He could be saying that. But because of what Paul says elsewhere in Scripture, and because of what most of the New Testament teaches, what the whole New Testament teaches, that's not what Paul is saying. And there's another, better, equally valid interpretation of his words here. Right? Paul is saying that if you don't persevere, your faith, the real reconciliation, if you don't continue in the faith, that actually didn't happen. That wasn't for real, right? The perseverance of the saints is not a condition of their being saints. It's a consequence of their being made saints. R.C. Sproul used to love to talk about the preservation of the saints, right? 
As John MacArthur, I believe, has said, if you could lose your salvation, you would, right? We are dependent on God for our perseverance. Remember what our sister Jenny read for us in Romans chapter 6. Everyone who has believed in Jesus has been united to Jesus in his death, and he or she has died to sin. Jesus accomplished that. He has broken the enslaving power of sin in all who believe in him. And so if sin, if unbelief, if hostility toward God wins out in a person eventually, if it chokes out what looked like faith in Jesus, it shows that that person was never really united to Jesus by faith. In fact, he was never truly reconciled uh, to God. So I don't think that Paul wants to undermine the assurance of real Christians, but he is absolutely issuing a real warning. Paul ain't faking in this conditional, right? So church, if in the words of 2 Peter chapter 1, we want to confirm or to make certain or to strengthen our confidence in our calling and election, if we want to ensure that we really have believed in Jesus, that he really has reconciled us, that he really, really will present us blameless on the day of judgment, then we should keep going as Christians. We should, we must persevere in the faith. Keep believing in Jesus. Look at the metaphors Paul uses there. Keep constructing the building of your life firmly on the hope of the gospel. He says, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. So brothers and sisters, keep believing what God says to you in his word. Live and act and think like what God says is true because you believe him. Keep immersing yourself in God's word that produces faith in his people. Keep exhorting one another, brothers and sisters, every day, lest any of us should be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Christian, if this, if this makes you worried, think about what Paul said at the beginning of his letter, right? Paul talked about the Colossians' faith and hope and love, and he congratulated them on their achievement, right? No, he thanked God for their faith and hope and love. Friend, if you find yourself in need of help persevering in the faith, if you know yourself as someone who needs help to keep believing, ask God for help. God opposes the proud. He loves to give grace to the humble who ask him for help. Friends, ask God to help you persevere because he has promised that all of Israel people will persevere. Paul talks about the Colossians' past alienation from God, their present reconciliation to God, their future presentation before God blameless on the day of judgment, contingent upon their perseverance in the meantime. The fourth and final thing I want us to see in this passage is that Paul concludes these verses with two, two brief comments about the gospel there in verse 23. So Paul says that the Colossians should be they should be not shifting from the hope of the gospel uh, that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, uh, became a minister. Two comments that Paul makes about the gospel. 
His first comment is that the gospel is a global gospel. Our translation says there that the gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. That is one way to translate what Paul said. Could be what he meant. Not in the sense that the gospel has already reached in Paul's day every corner of the world. Because Paul himself is very clear that it hadn't. Paul wrote Romans after he wrote Colossians. And in Romans he said, hey, I want to go to Spain because I want to preach the gospel where no one has preached the gospel yet. So Paul isn't saying every square inch of the earth has been evangelized in 60 or so AD. It might just be that he's saying, like, you know, we might say Coca-Cola is sold everywhere, but actually you can't get it in two countries, and I'm pretty sure there are some Polynesian islands that it hasn't reached, right? But it's sold everywhere, right? It actually might be better, I'm not sure, but it is possible to translate Paul's words as asserting not that this has already happened, uh, but just as saying that the proper domain of the gospel spread is the whole world. So he could be saying, this is a preach it all over the world kind of gospel. And and either way, Paul's point is that the gospel, this message about how God reconciles sinners to himself through Jesus and gives them perseverance in the faith to present them blameless before himself on the day of judgment, this gospel, it's for everybody. It's for Colossae. It's for Rome. It's for Spain. It's for Israel. It's for the United States. It's for Kenya. It's for Turkey. It's for Afghanistan. It's for the United Arab Emirates. It's for everyone. This gospel, it's for our friends. It's for our neighbors. It's for our families. It's for our political allies. It's for our political enemies. Right? May God graciously use us in the proclamation of his reconciling gospel in all creation uh, under heaven. It's the first thing he says about the gospel. We'll close here. What's the last thing that Paul says there about the gospel? What's the last phrase in verse 23? Paul says this message is the gospel of which I, Paul, became a minister. Listen, Paul is a genius. Paul is doing so many things at once in the way that he structures uh, his letters. So in this passage, he mentions how the Colossians heard the gospel hope, and he's a minister of it. He's kind of creating a bookend between this passage and what he mentioned about Epaphras, how the Colossians heard the gospel hope from the minister Epaphras. You can check out verses 3 to 8 for that again. So he's kind of creating a bookend between sort of a section in his letter. He's also transitioning to a text that we'll look at next week, Lord willing, in which he wants to talk about his own ministry. So he's been talking about the gospel and to kind of Make a good transition, students, right? You know about the good transitions at the end of the paragraph, right? Paul says, and it's the gospel of which I was made a minister. And by the way, let me tell you about my ministry, right? He's doing two things at once. And brothers and sisters, can it be an accident? Can it be an accident that Paul mentions himself? Paul, one who had become a minister of the gospel, right after he celebrates the reconciliation of hostile sinners to God. Who was more alienated from God than Paul? So deeply immersed in the scriptures, but so far from the Christ they proclaimed. Who was more hostile in mind to God than Paul? Persecuting Christians to death. Who did more evil deeds than Paul? Right, Paul says in Acts 26, 
I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they, Christians, were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Friends, what clearer picture of the reconciling mercy of God could there be than when the risen Lord Jesus appears to Paul, the hostile zealot, and when he appears to him, the words from Jesus' mouth are not, depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting flames prepared for the devil and his angels. And what are his words? Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? Right? Is it any wonder that this reconciled Paul could not stop speaking about the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, as he would later write? Brothers and sisters, let's pray that God would work at that same gospel zeal in us through the reconciliation we've received in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression? Lord, we marvel that we who were your enemies have been reconciled to you through the death of your beloved Son. Teach us to rejoice, to give thanks for that. Lord, would you keep your people at Franconia stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Grant us the perseverance in the faith that you require of your people, which you give to those united to Christ. Lord, thank you for your gospel. Teach us to love it. Teach us to proclaim it. Teach us to live lovingly, boldly, zealously for this Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.